This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week, our exclusive interview with new House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, plus a rare joint conversation with the chairs of the Senate Intelligence Committee, only on Face the Nation. Coming soon, the first face-to-face meeting in the new Congress between President Biden and Speaker McCarthy. The main topic on the agenda, paying America's bills and getting the country's fiscal house in order. We'll ask the speaker about what he thinks Congress should do to keep the U.S. from defaulting. If Republicans want to work together on real solutions, I'm ready. But I will not let anyone use the full faith and credit of the United States as a bargaining chip. We'll also hear from Virginia Democrat Mark Warner and Florida Republican Marco Rubio, the chair and vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, and get their thoughts on all those classified documents turning up where they shouldn't. Plus, the one issue they think Congress can get bipartisan agreement on, curbing the threat from China. The Chinese have found a way to use capitalism against us. In this technology race, second place is not good enough for us. Then, mostly peaceful protests spread across the country after the release of videos showing Tyree Nichols' deadly encounter with five Memphis police officers, now charged with murder. We'll talk about policing in America with former Orlando police chief and Congresswoman Val Demings. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We have a lot to get to this morning, including the latest on the evolving situation in Memphis. But we begin with the new Speaker of the House, California Republican Congressman Kevin McCarthy, who is second in the presidential line of succession. Mr. Speaker, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for having me back in the studio. It must be sobering to hear that reminder. Well, it took me a little while to get there, but it feels good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are here now at this key moment in time, and I want to get to some of the top agenda items. You have accepted an invitation to meet with President Biden. Um, When will that happen, and what offer will you put on the table? Well, we're going to meet this Wednesday. Um, I know the president said he didn't want to have any discussions, but I think it's very important that our whole government is designed to find compromise. I want to find a reasonable and a responsible uh, way that we can lift the debt ceiling but take control of this runaway spending. I mean, if you look at the last four years, the Democrats have increased spending by 30 percent, $400 billion. We're at 120 percent of GDP. Um, We haven't been in this place to debt since World War II. So we can't continue down this path. And I don't think there's anyone in America who doesn't agree that there's some wasteful Washington spending that we can eliminate. Mm -hmm. So I want to sit down together, work out an agreement that we can move forward to put us on a path to balance at the same time, not put any any of our debt in jeopardy at the same time. But uh, avoid a default, in other words. But do you have any indication that the president is willing to discuss both lifting the debt ceiling and the issue of future spending? Well, 
If he's changed his mind from his whole time in the Senate and vice president before, I mean, he literally led the talks in 2011 and he praised having those talks. This is what he's always done in the past. And if he listens to the American public, more than 74% believe we need to sit down and find ways to eliminate this wasteful spending in Washington. Mm -hmm. So I don't believe he would change his behavior from before. And I know there's a willingness on our side to find a way that we can find a reasonable and responsible way to get this done. Right. I mean, you know, I'm asking that in yeah. terms of not linking in, in my one first conversation the other. and to be fair the president when he called me to congratulate winning speaker this is one of the first things i brought up to him mm -hmm. and he said we'd sit down together now i know his staff tries to say something different but i think the president is going to be willing to make an agreement together well we'll watch for that on wednesday hopeful, yeah. i, I want to dig into what you are willing to put on the table because republicans campaigned on fiscal responsibility you promised you won't spend more next year than you did last year are you willing to consider any reductions to Social Security and Medicare? No, let's take those off the table. We Completely. Wanna, yeah. I mean, if you read our commitment to America, all we talk about is strengthening Medicare and Social Security. So, and I know the president says he doesn't want to look at it, but we've got to make sure we strengthen those. What I do you think, mean by strengthen? Do you mean lift the retirement age? For no, example? no, no. What I'm talking about, Social Security and Medicare, you can keep that to the side. What I want to look at is they've increased spending by 30%, $400 billion in four years. When you look at what they have done, uh, adding $10 trillion of debt for the next 10 years in this short time period, if you just look a month ago, they went through and they never even passed a bill through appropriations in the Senate. While Mr. Schumer has been leader, he's never passed a budget. He's never passed an appropriation bill. He simply waits to the, uh, to the end of the year and allowed two senators who are no longer here to write a $1.7 so omnibus bill. You I want think to work we, with Democrats to... Come to agreement on a budget. Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I, I first think our very first responsibility, we both should have to pass a budget. We both should have to pass the appropriate mm -hmm. appropriation bill so the country can see the direction we're going. But you cannot continue the spending that has brought this inflation, that right. has brought our economic problems. We've got to get our spending under control. Okay. Just fact check, though. 25% of the debt was incurred during the last four years of the Trump presidency. I mean, this is cumulative debt yeah, over we, many, uh, many years. Well, over a short uh, this time period, but you've yeah. also found that you had a pandemic. And right. as that pandemic comes down, those programs leave. I've watched the president say he cut it. No, it is spending 500 billion more than what mm -hmm. was projected. They have spent more and we've got to stop the waste. Is defense spending on the table? Well, look, I, I want to make sure we're protected in our defense spending, but I want to make sure it's effective and efficient. I want to look at every single dollar we're spending, no matter where it's being spent. I want to eliminate waste wherever it is. But when you uh, became speaker, you did come to that agreement I've referenced of, of capping 24 spending at 22 levels. Well, look, so listen. that would call for reductions. No, I mean, look, you're going to tell me inside defense there's no waste others. Um, I mean, so defense I, spending they is spend a lot of. I think everything, when you look at discretionary, is sitting there. It's like every single household. It's like every single state. We shouldn't just print more money. We should balance our budget. So mm -hmm. I want to look at every single department. Where can we become more efficient, more effective, and more accountable? So more that efficiencies in Social Security and Medicare as well. The one thing I want to take, we take Social Security Completely. and America okay. off the table. What, would you support a short-term debt limit extension until September? Buy more time for talks. Look, I don't want to sit and negotiate here. I'd rather sit down with the president and let's have those discussions. The one thing I do know is we cannot continue the waste that is happening. We cannot continue just to spend more money and leverage the debt of the future of America. We've right. got to get to a balanced budget. Well, and I think many people would agree with you on the issue of fiscal responsibility, but there's that deadline on the calendar in terms of facing potential default. Well, Are you saying well, wait, wait, you wait, will guarantee the United listen, States will not do that? We're not going to default, but let me be very honest with you right now. So we hit the statutory date, but let's take a pause. We have hundreds of billions of dollars. This won't come to fruition until sometime in June. So the responsible thing to do is sit down like two adults mm -hmm. and start having that discussion. Unfortunately, the White House was saying before, like they wouldn't even talk. Right. I'm I'm thankful that we're meeting on Wednesday, but that's exactly what we should be doing. And we should be coming to a responsible solution. 
Every family does this. What is what has happened with the debt limit is you reached your credit card limit. Should we just continue to raise the limit, or should we look at what we're spending? Well, if Chuck Schumer, yeah, but if no, no, Chuck Schumer never passed a budget since he's been leading. Yeah. He's never passed an appropriation bill. Those are the most basic things that Congress should do. And what if you're going to show to the American public where you want to spend your money, mm -hmm. and if you're going to ask the hardworking taxpayer for more of their money, you first should lay out how you're going to spend it and you should eliminate any way so you don't have to raise more but, but just to put a fine point on it because it matters a lot to the markets in particular um you will avoid a default you will not uh, let that happen on your watch there will not be a default but what is really irresponsible is what the democrats are doing right now saying but you should you, just raise the limit would you I get in the way if, if 15 Republicans the only came to person, you and said they would be willing but let to me be very raise clear. the debt limit, the would you allow them to do so with Democrats? The only person who is getting in the way right now is the president and Schumer. They won't even pass a budget. They won't even negotiate. We have now till June. I want to make sure we have something responsible, mm -hmm. something uh, that we can move forward on, and something that we can balance our debt with. So I'm looking for sitting down. That's exactly what I've been asking for. The only yeah. one who's playing with the markets right now is the president to have the idea that he wouldn't talk. Does the president really believe, and really all your viewers, do you believe there's no waste in government? Do you believe there was no waste in that $1.7 trillion? That's what we were spending just four weeks ago. So I think the rational position here is sit down, mm -hmm. eliminate the waste, and put us on a path to balance. We'll watch for that meeting on Wednesday. I want to ask you about your vision of leadership. Um, you made a number of deals within your party to win the speakership. Senator Mitch McConnell, your Republican colleague, said, hopefully McCarthy was not so weakened by all this that he can't be an effective speaker. How can you effectively govern with a very narrow majority and when your conference is so divided? Well, you know, that may be somebody else's opinion. So let's just see what my father always said. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. So let's see what happened in the first week. So in the very first week, we have passed what? We repealed the 87,000 IRS mm -hmm. agents. We bipartisanly created a new select committee on China where 146 Democrats joined with us. We bipartisanly passed to stop the strategic petroleum uh, reserve being sold to China where 113 Democrats joined with us. Mm -hmm. We just now, for the first time on the House, it hasn't happened in seven years, the entire time the Democrats were in the majority, where you had an open rule. And let me explain what that is. An open rule allows every single member of the House to yeah. offer an amendment on the bill. So what I'm trying to do here is let every voice in America have their ability inside the House. We open the House back up so the public could actually join. So you're arguing you haven't been I weakened, may, I, but... No, it's only you, been strengthened. Maybe people didn't like what they saw that uh, we didn't win on the very first vote, mm -hmm. but that was democracy. And what you found at the end of the day were actually stronger. Well, you know I, what else? Yeah. We changed it where members of Congress now have to show up for work. I know in the Senate they don't come very often, but if you look what we've been able to do, we're transforming Congress. Well, you we're also looking for allowed, solutions. Just one member now can force a vote to oust you as Speaker. Okay, but How can you expect to serve in the next two years in this role? Exactly how every other speaker has served with that. Without those rules like that no. right now. That's a risk. Okay. I mean, you really think you can control the, the Freedom Caucus and some of those more conservative members who gave you such Everybody a hard time? Everybody has a voice. But let me, let me explain that. That one vote to vacate, that's not new. That's been around for 100 years. The only person who took it away when they got a small mm -hmm. majority was Nancy Pelosi. So Nancy felt she did not have the power to stay in office if that was there. I'm very comfortable in where we are. So okay. I don't have any fear in that. You don't regret any of the concessions you made? The only concession I made was taking it from five to one, where it's been around for 100 years. Um, I want to ask you about some of the makeup uh, of your caucus. According yes. to CBS Records, 70 percent of the House GOP members denied the results of the 2020 election. You put many of them on very key committees, intelligence, homeland security, oversight. Why are you elevating people who are denying reality like that? Well, if you look to the Democrats, their ranking member, member Raskin had the same thing, denied Trump or Bush was in there. Benny Thompson, who was Did you see those numbers did that you we see just the, put up there? Yeah. 70%. Did you also be fair and equal where you looked at Raskin did the same thing. Benny Thompson, who's a ranking member and was the chair. These individuals were chair of the Democratic I'm Party. I'm asking you as leader of but Kevin I'm also, McCarthy's I'm also, house I'm also, why you made these choices. These were your choices. 
Yeah, they're my choices, but they're the conference choices. But I'm also asking you, when you look to see just Republicans, Democrats have done the same thing. So maybe it's not denying. Maybe it's the only opportunity they have to have a question about what go went on during the election. So if you want to hold Republicans to that equation, why don't you also hold Democrats? Why don't you hold Jamie Raskin? Why don't you hold Benny Thompson when Democrats had appointed them to be chair? Mm -hmm. I never once heard you ask Nancy Pelosi or any Democrat that question when they were in power in the majority when they question you're talking about things going back to 2000 which was a time well, you're when talking about i didn't have this show back then which yeah. is why i'm asking you no, now no, about but your they were they were, in, they were in power last congress so why why but you're talking about questions but why, from 2000 but, but you're asking me about questions about that happened to another you just congress. made you're you just actually made. about questions for another congress so the only thing i'm this simply talking these these are members who just got elected by their constituents and we put them into committees and i'm proud to do it let me ask you about uh, some specifics then. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you put her on a new subcommittee to investigate the origins of COVID. Yes. She compared mask requirements to the type of abuse Jews were subjected to during the Holocaust. She called for Fauci to be arrested and imprisoned, and she spread conspiracy theories. How is anyone supposed to take that work seriously and find that work credible? Very well. You look at all of it, so you have all the questions out there. I think what the American you think these are legitimate questions. I think what the American public wants to see is an open dialogue in the process. This is a select committee where people can have all the questions they want, and you'll see the outcome. Um, you know that there is a lot of doubt about institutions and faith in institutions. In oh, country. yeah. When you saw what happened in Congress where they had proxy voting, where bills didn't go through committees. I don't and, think most people know what proxy voting is. Well, but, let, well, but, let, well let's explain but what proxy voting is. But I think it would be fair to your level, viewers. According to Gallup of Congress is at 22 percent. Approval level of journalists is also not very high. I'll give you that. But doesn't it further wear down credibility when you put someone who's under state, local, federal and international investigation as a representative of Are your you party on committees, I'm talking about George no, Santos, I, uh, representative from well, New York. We should have that discussion. So let's have that discussion. You want to bring up S Santos and let's talk about the institution itself, because I agree wholeheartedly that Congress is broken. And I think your I think your listeners or viewers should understand what proxy voting was, because it never took place in Congress. But I'm asking before. you about George Santos. I know you asked me a question. Let me because ask you. Because you could put it to a vote. You to asked me a question. Ask. I'd appreciate if you let me answer. So let's go through this, because it's not one simple answer. Congress is broken based upon what has transpired in the last Congress. The American public wasn't able to come in to see us. People voted by proxy, meaning you didn't have to show up for work. Mm -hmm. Bills didn't go have to go through committee. So what I'm trying to do is open the people's house back for the people so their voice is there, so people are held accountable. So now, as I just had in the last week, for the first time yeah. in seven years, every member got to vote. If now, you got a third of your caucus to vote to oust could, him, you could do so. Do you, do you don't think you could get your Republicans to do that? I wasn't finished answering the question. So if every single new person brought into Congress was elected by their constituents, what their constituents have done has lend their voice to the American public. So those members can all serve on committee. Now, what I'm trying to do is change some of these committees as well. Like the Intel Committee is different than so any other committee. So you're just not going to answer the question I asked. Well, no, I, no, you don't get to question whether I answer it. You asked a question. I'm trying to get you through that. I don't you think you've that. said the name George Santos like once. <laughs> well, no, you but you know what? I You're just, talking about proxy but, but, voting no, no, and no. other things. But you, no, you started the question with Congress was broken, and I agreed with no, you. But I Congress. was answering the question mm -hmm. of how Congress is broken and how we're changing it. So if I okay. can finish the question that you asked me, how Congress is broken, I equated every yep. single member they just got elected by their by their mm -hmm. constituents, they have a right to serve. So that okay. means that Santos can serve on a committee the same okay. way Swalwell, who had a relationship with a Chinese spy. But Speaker, they will not serve on intel. They're wrapping me I in the control room because we're well, that's unfortunate. Break. I wish I could I answer have the to question. Leave it there. I would love to have you back. I would love to be able to come okay. back and have time to answer the questions. We've spent a lot of time here and I have more questions for you, but I got to go. So we'll be right back. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, 
As an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. We traveled to Capitol Hill last week for an exclusive interview with the two leaders of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Democratic Chairman Mark Warner and Republican Vice Chairman Marco Rubio. We began by discussing the classified documents mishandled by the current and former presidents and former vice president. Do you have any timeline in terms of when you will get visibility into the documents of classified material that both President Biden and President Trump had in their residences? Margaret, unfortunately, no. And this committee has had a long bipartisan history of doing its job. And our job here is intelligence oversight. Um, the Justice Department has had the Trump documents about six months, the Biden documents about three months. Our job's not to figure out if somebody mishandled those, but our job is to make sure there's not an intelligence compromise. And while the Director of National Intelligence had been willing to brief us earlier, now that you've got the special counsel, the notion that we're going to be left in limbo and we can't do our job, that just cannot stand. But the intelligence community would say their, their hands are tied because this is an ongoing, active Justice Department investigation. So what would meet the level of, of addressing your concerns without compromising that? Well, I don't know how congressional oversight on the documents, actually knowing what they are in any way impedes an investigation. Th these are probably materials we already have access to, we just don't know which ones they are. And it's not about being nosy, you know, the, here's the bottom line, if in fact those documents were very sensitive, materials were sensitive, and they pose a counterintelligence or national security threat to the United States, then the intelligence agencies are tasked with the job of coming up with ways to mitigate that. Does and the director would, even know what the materials were? Well, we got a bit of a vagueness on that because again, I believe want to make sure the intelligence professionals and not political appointees were making some of that. That makes sense to me. But I would even think that, you know, if the President Trump and President Biden would probably want to have this known if they say there's no there there. Well, you know, there may still be violations on handling. Let me tell you how absurd this is. If there isn't a day that goes by that there isn't some media report about what was found where, what some sort of characterization of the material in the press. So somehow the only people who are not allowed to know what was in there are congressional oversight committees. So it's an untenable situation that I think has to be resolved. The idea that some of these documents go all the way back to when President Biden was a senator, does that suggest that there's something more than a problem in the executive branch? Well, agreed. That's why the notion of we're not going to give the oversight committee the ability to do its job until the special prosecutor somehow says it's okay doesn't doesn't hold water you know we have a right as not only members of the intelligence committee but as part of the leadership to review vir virtually every classified document we got a problem in terms of both classification levels how senior elected officials when they leave government how they handle documents um, we've had too many examples of this, and again, I think uh, we've got the bipartisan bona fides to say, let's put them in place on a going forward basis, a better process. So you, you threatened to withhold some funding to some of the agencies. I'm not in the threat business right now, but we certainly are, there are things we need to do as a committee every year to authorize the moving around of funds. I think the Director of National Intelligence and other heads of intelligence agencies are aware of that. You know, at, at some point, I'd prefer for them just to call us this morning or tomorrow or whenever and mm -hmm. say, look, we, we, this is the arrangement that we think we can reach so that the overseers can get access to this. I'd prefer not to go down that road, but it's one of the pieces of leverage we have as Congress. We're gonna figure out a way to make sure that we get that access so that we can not only tell the American people, but we've got you know, another 85 U.S. senators who are not on the Intelligence Committee who look to us to get those assurances. What is it that you as lawmakers can do? Is it new regulations? The Director of National Intelligence is the individual that's the chief officer mm -hmm. 
for intelligence classification. I think, and there's been a number of other members of the Senate, both parties have been working for years on the notion that we overclassify the number right. of things that we read in a skiff that somehow then appear in the newspaper. Um, you know, begs the question. It's kind of been an issue that's been bubbling for a long time. I think this, I think this series of events pushes it to the forefront. And uh, again, we have the power to write legislation, which then executive agencies have to follow. In terms of record keeping. In terms of record keeping. In terms, literally, of at least guidance on classification issues. I mean, there has mm -hmm. been, and again, this director of national intelligence, I'm going to give her credit, she has been at least acknowledging, and long before this issue came up, said we need to work on this issue of you know, declassification, overclassification. Every director says it, and then it kind of gets pushed, pushed back. I think you know, one good thing that may come out of this is that we're going to find a way to resolve this issue on a going forward basis. Justice Department said it worked in good faith to brief Congress on the Trump classified document investigation back in September, according to a letter sent to lawmakers yesterday. But circumstances changed with the appointment of two separate special counsels. Now, separately, the Justice Department tells us they are committed to sharing as much information as we can with Congress without endangering the integrity of our ongoing investigations. Welcome back to Face the Nation. For all the division on Capitol Hill, one subject that invites at least some bipartisan unity is the threat posed by China. For more, we return to our interview with the leaders of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner and Marco Rubio. President Biden is reportedly close to issuing an executive order when it comes to restrictions on U.S. investments in, uh, in China, um, but there's concern about risking further escalation. What's your view on how far that action should go? The Chinese have found a way to use capitalism against us. As, as, uh, and and what I mean by that is the ability to attract investment into entities that are deeply linked to the state. That military commercial fusion that exists in China is a concept that we don't have in this country. We have contractors that do defense work. But there is no distinction in China between advancements in technology, biomedicine, whatever it might be, and the interests of the state. And then the second is obviously the access to our capital markets. And the third is the risk pose. We don't, up to this point, have not had levels of transparency in terms of auditing and the like on these investments of the, into these companies. When you invest in these companies in U.S. exchanges, you don't have nearly as much information about the, the bookkeeping of those companies as you would uh, uh, an American company or a European company because they've refused to comply with those restrictions. So there's systemic risk to our investments. And then there's also the geopolitical reality uh, that American capital flows are helping to fund activities that are ultimately designed to undermine our national security. Beginning of the 20th century, I was a big believer that you know, the more you bring China into the world order, right. the more things will all be copacetic. We were just wrong on that. Uh, the Communist Party, under President Xi's leadership, and my beef is be clear with the Communist Party, it's not with the Chinese people or the Chinese diaspora, wherever it is in the world, um, but they basically changed the rules of the road. Mm -hmm. They made clear in Chinese law that every company in China's ultimate responsibility is to the Communist Party, not to their customers, not to their shareholders. We have actually, in a bipartisan way, and over the, didn't get a lot of attention, over the last seven years have been out and we've done 20 classified briefings for industry sector after industry sector about these risks. Frankly, pre-COVID, we kind of got nods, right. but you know, some pushback because a lot of Companies because companies making, just wanted access making, to the market. We're making a lot of money off Chinese exactly. tech companies. Exactly. Now, post-COVID, I think there is an awakening that this is a real challenge. Mm -hmm. And I think the good news is that not only is there awakening you know, in America, but a lot of our allies around the world are seeing this threat as well. So I, you I think want restrictions on biotech, battery technology, semiconductors, artificial intelligence. I want to have an approach that says we need to look at foreign technology investments foreign technology development, regardless of country, if it poses a national security threat and have some place that can evaluate this. We need a frame to systemically look at this. Um, and frankly, it goes just beyond the so-called CFIUS legislation about inbound or outbound investment. That's a committee that looks at but national understanding security that for, you know, 20 years ago, everybody thought capitalism was going to change China. And we mm -hmm. woke up to the realization that capitalism didn't change China. China changed capitalism. Mm -hmm. And they've used it to their advantage and to our disadvantage. 
and not simply from an old Soviet perspective to take us on from a geopolitical or military perspective. They've done so from a technological and industrial perspective. And so you have seen the largest theft and transfer of intellectual property in the history of humanity occur over the last 15 years, some of it funded by American taxpayers. They have the biggest hacking ability program than any other nation. Intelligence community says they're the world leader in surveillance, in censorship. How restricted should their ability to access this market be? I think it is nearly impossible for any Chinese company mm -hmm. to comply with both Chinese law and our expectations in this country. Chinese law is very clear. If you're a Chinese company and we ask you for your data, we ask you for your information, we ask you for what you have or we ask you to do something, you either do it or you won't be around. You want to ban Chinese companies from investing in America? Well, I think there are certain inv investments where there's no way we could protect the country from doing it. You, again, we go back to TikTok, people say, who, uh, you know, why do we care about what some 16-year-olds are doing? I don't think the right. threat is that some 16-year-old liked these cool videos that are on there, which I admit are, are attractive, obviously, because the artificial intelligence makes it so. It's the massive amount of data that they're collecting, not on one 16-year-old, not on a thousand 16-year-olds, but on millions and millions of Americans that give them commercial advantages, potentially the advantage of being able to shape American uh, public opinion in a time of crisis, uh, that, that just give them extraordinary insights that allow them to steer the conversation in this country in any direction they want. But this has been talked about for three years but, but now. Let's, the let's, Trump administration tried to ban it. The Biden administration still hasn't pulled the trigger. Maybe we were all a little bit slow to recognize the challenge here. You know, it is both a data collection entity. Now, it may not collect as much data as some of our American platforms, but it is very much, at the end of the day, still responsible to the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. But think about this, Margaret. 138 million users in America use TikTok on a regular basis, average about 90 minutes a day. The fact is, the algorithms that determine what you see on TikTok is yeah. determined out of Beijing by China. And the proof is, if you look at what Chinese kids are seeing on their version of TikTok, which emphasizes science and engineering versus what our kids and kids around the world are seeing, it is dramatically different. So both from a data collection yeah. and from, frankly, a propaganda tool, it is of huge concern. CBS spoke to TikTok about their plans, and the company said they had come to an agreement over the summer in terms of how they could structure things to separate um, and create a, a wall to protect against some of these concerns. They said they can continue operating in the U.S. by offering data protections. Do you both know what they are offering? And you're laughing, so I'm guessing this isn't sufficient. I, I don't know what the data protections are, and there's a technical aspect to it, but it's beyond the data protections. I, I filed the bill to ban it right. last year. We're going to refile it again this year. It's bipartisan. It's bicameral. Some people are not willing to go that far, but I certainly think it's the right place to be. But in the end, we've got to do something about it, whether it's a ban or something else. I, I honestly don't know. I, as as I sit here with you today, I don't know how our national security interests and the operation of TikTok in this country, as long as it's owned by ByteDance, uh, can coexist. And I'm, you want and, to force the sale? I, I want, I've been wanting to do that for three years. Mm -hmm. I may have a slightly different approach. I'm going to sit down and see how we can work through this. But I've been hearing it. I've been trying to give the Biden administration now more than two years to see, is there a technical solution here? Mm -hmm. And I'd be willing to take a look at it. Biden administration has not announced that. And I think the problem is this is technically extraordinarily hard to do. TikTok has repeatedly said, oh, American data not being seen in China. And repeatedly we've seen Chinese engineers having access to American data. But it's already been downloaded 200 million times. How this do you convince a 16-year-old to delete the app and get rid of the phone? I mean, is, isn't this very hard to put the this toothpaste is, this, back in the this, tube? Absolutely. But this is one of the reasons why I think Congress has been horribly unsuccessful at this. You know, I've been saying for years, uh, and we may not fully agree on this, but that on all these social media companies, a lot of good, but there is a dark underbelly. And the fact that the United States, historically, we would have set some rules of the road mm -hmm. for, these, for these entities in terms of standards, in terms of uh, protocols, in terms of uh, appropriate behavior, in terms of uh, questions like even like basic privacy. Right. But our failure to do so has mean we have ceded that leadership, often now times to the Europeans or to individual states. And I think that's frankly a loss of American leadership. You know, for most of my lifetime, we led virtually in every innovation area. We suddenly woke up with, you know, 5G, a wireless communication where China was, you know, setting the standards. We, we woke up in an industry like semiconductor chips yeah. and, and woke up. We used to own this and we've lost it. We've seen now the solar industry where it's all migrated to China. If Think about you know, this notion around quantum computing, the ability to break any kind of encryption. 
or artificial intelligence. And those technologies are driven by an authoritarian regime out of China. You know, I don't care where you fall on the political spectrum in America. That's not good news or uh, for free people aren't anywhere you, in the world. Aren't you going to run headlong into business interests here in the United States? I mean, just look at Elon Musk. Uh, the U.S. government relies on his company, SpaceX. He has a majority in car company Tesla. He has control over the internet connection in Ukraine via Starlink. Uh, and he now owns Twitter. You said there's no one in the world more dependent on the Communist Party than Elon Musk. My concern is, you know, if you look at Mr. Musk's public statements, they're almost all supportive mm -hmm. of the oversight regime in China, and they're almost all derogatory about the oversight regime in America and in Europe. And part of that, I think, whether it's knowingly or not, is where does he get all his batteries that go into all these Teslas? They are, you know, built in China, mostly, uh, frankly, with a lot of Uyghur labor. And Senator Rubio has been the leader on trying to make sure that the Chinese Communist Party's treatment of the Uyghur people is prohibited. And you know, I've yet to hear from Mr. Musk how that kind of contradiction about comments about the CCP in China mm -hmm. and what he's dealing with Uyghur rate labor, how that's not going to influence some of his decisions. It goes beyond Elon Musk. I mean, business interests have invested both in access to the Chinese market, but also in the means of production. And it's allowed them, in many cases, historically, to be deputized. That includes the finance and investment world to come to Washington and argue for things that are against the national interest, but in favor of their short and midterm profit line for their investors, for their company. Senator Rubio, as a conservative, you have to feel a little bit uncomfortable with talking about government intervention in private industry. Um, but that has been the U.S. solution in some ways to the semiconductor issues you were raising, the subsidy to try to bring chip making back to America. Well, I would argue this. That I don't believe in government intervention in the private sector, but I do believe in government intervention in our national security. And These so are subsidies. Capitalism, well, so capitalism is going to give you the most efficient outcome. But sometimes, what do you do when the most efficient outcome is not in our national interest? Because it's more efficient to buy rare earth minerals from the Chinese. It's more efficient to have things built over there in many cases. But is it in our national interest to depend on them for 80-something percent of the active ingredients in our pharmaceuticals? I could argue it was not. And in those instances where the market-efficient outcome is not in our national interest, it is my opinion that we default to the national interest. Because without our national interest and our national security, the other things won't matter. We're, we are not a market. We're a nation. And the market exists to serve the nation, not the nation to serve the market. The $50 billion that taxpayers just pumped in to the chips bill and semiconductors, that's just the start. That I'm you saying, think other legislation's coming you know, like that? One of the reasons that it took us $52 billion, and that was for both semiconductors and next generation wireless, was because I candidly, I think we went asleep at the switch for a long time. And we had to suddenly play catch up because we'd seen China advance. And we'd also seen mm -hmm. Taiwan, our friend, and one of the reasons why we need to be supportive, where frankly, every advanced chip in all of our jet satellites and, and sea craft are made in Taiwan. We were chasing after the fact. If we can get ahead on, on some of these key areas, I don't think we will need that kind of investment, but we are gonna need to make sure that we've got a plan in place to make sure that these new technology domains don't all end up in China. We need to identify what are the critical industries and capacities that our country needs to be able to have without being leveraged or, or having to go through the Chinese to get it. And then we need to figure out what government's role is. Now, I want to make sure that we're not turning this into a lobbyist trough where every industry comes here and gets money. And we have to make sure that we're going to invest in research, that that research is protected, mm -hmm. that there's sufficient safeguards. Because what's the point of putting billions of dollars to innovate something they're going to steal anyway? But I do think, again, this is not about government running or owning these companies. We're not going to rely on the Chinese or someone else to make it for us because we'll be, we'll be denied that capability in a time of conflict. Can you get that through a divided Congress? I actually think if there's one issue that still is extraordinarily bipartisan, it is a growing concern about China and a recognition that in this technology race, second place is not good enough for us. We actually haven't had a bipartisan interview like this in about three years. So to see a Democrat and Republican sit down and talk about issues of substance is great to see. Thank you. Thank you both. We'll be right back. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion 
while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. One day after the video of Tyree Nichols' deadly encounter with police was made public, the Memphis police shut down its Scorpion unit, a specialized group which includes the five officers that have now been charged with second-degree murder. For more, we now go to former Democratic Congresswoman Val Demings, who spent 27 years with the Orlando Police Department, including four years as its chief. It's good to talk to you. Margaret, thank you. It's good to be with you. What was your reaction when you saw the video of these five officers beating Tyree Nichols? You know, as someone who spent 27 years uh, in law enforcement, started out as an officer on midnight shift patrol and served in every rank, served as the chief of police. Uh, I've seen um, policing at its best and I've seen it at its worst. But what I saw in the video was shocking and appalling. The gruesome beating. Uh, my heart goes out to the Wells Nichols family. It goes out to his community. Um, I, you know, and, and I so appreciate the words from Miss Wells when she not only talked about the gruesome death of her son, but also spoke to the five officers involved by saying that you've disgraced yourselves and your own uh, family. So as a career law enforcement officer, I could not believe uh, what I was seeing. It stood out to me that those five officers in Memphis were between the ages of 24 and 32 years old. They were all hired within the last six years. Is this an experience problem? Is this a bad cop problem? You know, Margaret, it is so important um, that we look at as police executives and you know, there's not much of an appetite we know in Washington, D.C. now to come up with the national standards that I believe are so desperately needed. Um, I also question what state legislatures are willing to do. But this falls back now on police executives, our chiefs, our sheriffs, to come up with much needed reforms that start with hiring the brightest and the best, having psychological evaluations being a part of that to ensure fitness for duty. And look, I'm more than familiar with specialized units. Many of them are the results of calls from the community to for officers to address crime activities and like drug activity, mm -hmm. gang activity. But we have to make sure as police executives that we are putting the most seasoned and most experienced officers in this unit that are well trained and highly supervised. So as I look at the night that went off the rails in Memphis, uh, there are a lot of questions that are unanswered but have to be answered. But we are hearing from mayors across this country that they are facing, in many places, shortages of police officers, people willing to do the work. The mayor of New Orleans was here last week telling us that. She's now asked for federal marshals and ATF agents in her city. Why is this such a problem? Well, you know, hiring as someone who has actually hired a law enforcement officer, it has always been challenging, not necessarily because of the lack of numbers, but the effort to make sure that we are hiring people who have the right temperament to be able to do the job. I can remember in a year having 40,000 people who wanted to be Orlando police officers, and it, we ended up hiring maybe 20 of that 40,000, trying to take every effort, every step to make sure that we hire the best person 
uh, to do the job. And so hiring has always been challenging. But we also, again, police executives have to be mm -hmm. creative, not just wait for people to knock on that door, but to go out into various communities, visiting college campuses, making sure that police departments do continue to reflect the diversity of the communities that they serve. This is a time that we have to be use new and creative approaches mm -hmm. to making sure that we're bringing in the right men and women. It really starts with hiring. Uh, making sure that we are bringing in the right men and women to do the job. Uh, how would you judge the performance of the Memphis police chief um, who has said this unit, the Scorpion unit, did good work? You know, I know uh, C.J. Davis. Uh, she is a professional law enforcement officer. She worked as a deputy chief in Atlanta, the chief of Durham. She is now, of course, the chief in Memphis. And I think that she has handled this very tragic incident as well as she could. We all have commented on the swift action with the firing them, working very closely with the DA to bring those charges for, forward in a very expeditious manner. She's also been very transparent with the community, and boy, do we need to see more of that. She was also the president of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. She is very well trained, and I do believe, while this is one of the toughest moments in our country, that she is the right leader to lead us through this very tough time. Well, I wonder because I was you know, reading a piece in New York Magazine entitled The End of Police Reform, and it pointed out, and in Memphis, Adaptations had been made since 2020 in terms of mandating de-escalation, banning chokeholds. There were body cameras. That wasn't a deterrent here. The police force is 60 percent black, it reported, with a black police chief. Even with these adjustments, this horrific situation happened. So when you hear calls for police reform, what is the piece of reform you think that makes the difference? Or is it just recruitment? Margaret, we have made calls uh, police, for police reform, um, especially since the brutal death of George Floyd. Now, let me say this. I was in Congress during the time that George voted for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which, no, we all know it was not perfect. But my goodness, I sure believe it was a major step in the right direction. And I think that too many police executives think that any criticism of the police or any efforts to reform or modify hiring standards, modify training standards, make sure they have the technology that they need to better be able to do the job, calling for national databases and better enforcement. Too many people see that as we're not supporting the police. Well, I see it as exactly that supporting the police, giving them the tools that they need to do the job, but also to hold them accountable. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, it goes, it's not just hiring, but a doggone sure starts with hiring. When yeah. they're in training, making sure that we have the right field training officers mm -hmm. who we know set the standard for what's acceptable and unacceptable on the street. Yeah. Looking at internally at policies and modifying those use of force policies. Yes, mm -hmm. the body cameras. Think about if we did not have this footage. Okay. But this situation was so off the rails and so yes. outside of the box. There's a lot of work that needs to be and done. I, there. I, I hear your passion there. Thank you uh, for sharing your analysis with us. We'll be back in a moment. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. A recent outbreak of violence has raised security concerns in the Mideast. CBS News foreign correspondent MTS Tayyip is in Jerusalem. 
Secretary Blinken's visit comes as violence continues to sweep across Israel and the occupied West Bank, and violence so deadly we haven't seen it on this scale in several years. Now, yesterday saw the funeral of a married couple who were shot dead alongside five others by a suspected Palestinian gunman just outside a synagogue on Friday. The alleged 21-year-old attacker's family home has now been sealed shut by Israeli police as part of a series of punitive measures passed by recently re-elected Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his cabinet were described as the most extreme right-wing government this country has ever seen. The new measures, which follow a massive Israeli raid on the Palestinian city of Jenin, in which nine Palestinians were killed, also includes taking away the IDs, work permits, and other rights of families of suspected attackers. Now, separately, Blinken's visit to the region comes as Iran says bomb-carrying drones targeted several defense facilities, including one in Iran's central city of Isfahan overnight. And while there is no immediate claim of responsibility, Tehran has been targeted in suspected strikes by its bitter rival Israel for years now. Margaret. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, Virginia Democratic Senator and Chairman of the Intelligence Committee Mark Warner, Florida Republican Senator and Vice Chairman of the Intelligence Committee Marco Rubio, and former Orlando Police Chief and Congresswoman Val Demings. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.34, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.